Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, and the follow-up book, Imposter Doctors, Rebecca Bernard. Today, we're talking about non-compete contracts. These are agreements that hospitals and other agencies require physicians to sign prior to employment. And what they say is that if you leave employment for whatever reason, you cannot work within a certain radius of that job that you're leaving. Now, sometimes that can be reasonable, but other times these non-competes can completely restrict a physician's ability to work and to care for patients that they have served in their community. And that's exactly what has happened to today's guest, Dr. Jackie O'Kane. Dr. O'Kane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am originally from the Atlanta area, from Marietta. And when I was in high school, I shadowed a general surgeon and found that I really enjoyed medicine. And it was something that I felt like I was called to do. So I went to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. They have a branch campus in Swanee, which is in Metro Atlanta. And then when I graduated, I decided I wanted to do family medicine. So I, I did my residency up in Spartanburg, South Carolina at Spartanburg Regional. Loved it, had a great education there. So while I was in medical school, I had joined the Air Force. And so after residency, I was called to active duty at Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. So came down to this area where I, I am still now. And I was a primary care manager or PCM, which is what they called us because a lot of the people who were PCMs were not necessarily physicians. And a lot of the work that we had to do was not necessarily uh, related to being a physician. Um, so there's a lot of administrative stuff and leadership activities and all that. And it was, it was a good experience, but it was just not what I wanted to do long term with my life. So I was really excited when I was able to get out of the military, but that was in the year 2020. So of course, everything was turned upside down with the pandemic and I entertained the thought of moving, but it just didn't seem like a good time to do that. So I looked around at some local hospital systems, tried to see if they had anything good to offer. And there was one that said, hey, we really want to open this clinic in this rural area north of here. Would you be interested in being the solo doc there? And it sounded exciting to me. So that's what I did. And in July of 2020, we opened our, our little clinic and it was just me and two MAs. And it was kind of the blind leading the blind because I had, I had never even practiced civilian medicine outside of residency before. The two MAs had never done anything like this. The hospital had never opened their own clinic. They had just acquired some private practices before. So it was really this whole new frontier, and especially with the pandemic in the background too, it was like, and how do we advertise ourselves? Everybody's wearing masks. Nobody wants to come in. So it took a little while. Like I, I had patients that kind of started to stream in, but by January of, of 2021, we were really hopping and really just built that practice pretty fast to the point that later in that year, I said, I really need help. I want another physician. They said, we're not going to do that. But how about a nurse practitioner? And I, I found a wonderful one and was happy to have her. But I discovered pretty soon that even having her around, I just, I didn't have a life. Like I just was so busy all the time seeing patients and they were complicated. A lot of them had not had a doctor before um, where they had multiple medical problems and 
I enjoyed working through what was going on with each person, but I just never could catch a break. I worked through lunch. I came in early. I stayed late. It's the, I'm sure what everybody says they end up doing with primary care and family medicine. So I started to realize last year, I just couldn't sustain this anymore. I have two daughters. I'd miss so much of their childhoods and I didn't like coming home late and being grumpy and seeing them just before bed. And that was really it. Um, So I thought, okay, I need to get out. And that's when I really started looking at my contract. Now, I will tell you, I did, before I signed this contract, I had shared it with an attorney and I brought several to him and just said, you know, does anything in any of these stand out? And he said, no, um, that really having that non-compete provision was very standard for this area. And I didn't think anything of it because my thought at the time was, well, if I love the job, this won't matter. And if I hate it, I'll just move. But then I started finding myself in this position of, well, it's not that I hate it. I just know that I can't keep doing this anymore. I need to do something else. And this is a really terrible time to move. I I did entertain the thought of going somewhere else, even almost accepted a job in another state. And I just thought, I can't afford it. And my family's so happy here and our kids are in a good school. So then I suddenly found myself bound by that non-compete in a way I didn't anticipate. So that's where I am right now. I, my last day on this job was, was at the end of June. And um, I've been trying to figure out creative ways that I can still work because I need to. I'm the breadwinner for my family. And, um, but not violate that non-compete since uh, the administration made it very clear that they would sue me if I did. And that's really scary. So let's talk a little bit about non-competes. As I mentioned in the introduction, these are rules that say that a doctor cannot work within a certain mile radius of where they're leaving employment. And there's like different kind of standards. I, I What I read from yours is that it was 50 miles. Did Is that pretty standard? That seems like a very long way to have to go to commute if you wanted to open your own practice or go work for someone else. Apparently, it is standard for where I am. Now that's changing, and I've actually found that some some folks that I've, I've spoken to have less stringent non-competes. But mine was fifty miles uh, for two years, and then another thing that that makes it a little unusual compared to non-competes that I've I've heard from that other people have is that I can't mac- practice medicine in any capacity. Meaning, not only can I not do outpatient family medicine like before, but inpatient, nursing home, urgent care, nothing. So that makes it really difficult to get around. Wow. Now I've heard people say that sometimes non-competes are quote unenforceable, meaning if you were to take it to court, a judge would say that that, that's not reasonable. But the problem with that is it costs a lot of money to get to that point. Or did you, is that something that you pursued? Georgia is a funny state about this because they have enforced non-competes before. However, 50 miles does seem uh, like a bit beyond what's been enforced before. So I, I think that it's possible that that they're a judge, depending on who they are and what they believe, may say that it's not exactly enforceable. That's that's the big risk, though. I do have an attorney, and we've wavered on what we want to do as far as strategy goes because it really is going to depend upon that judge. And if I get lucky, I I could have a judge who says this is this is just going to be thrown out or maybe blue penciled, where they end up just modifying it. Or it could be that they say, hey, you signed a legal document. This is your problem. That's the end of it. Right. So it is a risk and it would cost money and time and energy and things like that. 
So I guess if you're looking at the hospital side, they're saying, well, you know, we put money into this practice. We supported this practice. Therefore, we want to recoup our expenses and we don't want you leaving and then taking our patients. But does that seem reasonable considering that you're in a rural area and most of the money that hospitals make usually comes from ancillaries and admissions, which I would assume your patients are going to go to the hospital for those things regardless? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, to me, it really doesn't make sense. I understand that they were trying to bar me from working for other big competing hospitals. And that's part of why I think they said 50 miles, because that hospital system is 49 miles from my practice. Okay. So I, I get that they don't want me to just jump ship and go to the competitor, but, but you're right. I mean, pretty much everything that I ordered, all the specialists I sent patients to, everything went through the hospital anyway. And that would still be the case if I were still practicing around here. So really, the way I presented it to them was, you guys are going to be losing money by enforcing this because you're losing my referrals. And yes, my nurse practitioner actually is still there by herself now. She has another physician that's remotely supervising her. But a lot of patients have left that practice, from my understanding. I I guess I don't know that for sure. But patients have said that they wanted to be seen by a physician or they were frustrated because, you know, now that I'm not there, there's some apparently maybe some staffing issues and they're having a harder time getting in. And so, you know, it ended up making it more difficult for patients in this area to get care. Whereas if I had just been able to practice there, then those same patients could still be seen and then would still have their imaging and labs at the hospital. They would still see the specialists at the hospital. And that's really where the hospital makes their money. Doesn't make a lot of sense. And then when you think about the fact that we have a physician shortage and we absolutely have a shortage in rural areas, which is exactly where you're practicing, the hospital stance on this and them them being so rigid on it is really hurting your community and it's hurting patients. Has there been any pushback against the hospital or any kind of public relations or any patient outcry about what's happened? Really a sticky subject because I mean, patients are upset. There's only so much I could tell them. You know, I didn't want to make the hospital look bad. Like I'm not trying to get myself into a a situation where the hospital's coming after me for saying something about them. Like I just, I really just wanted my patients to know though, that like, I, I want to be there. I intended to be there and I can't. And there were some who got upset, but I don't know if anybody has written any letters or done anything about it. I don't, I think a lot of us, patients and and me and and some of my fellow physicians were just not sure the best approach to this like what's actually going to make a difference and it won't cost a whole ton of money up front for us to get this out there and maybe make a change you did get some media attention i think it was in fortune uh, magazine or the online where they did an article about the federal trade commission is looking at possibly banning or barring non-competes. Tell us about that article that you were featured in and what the FTC is is talking about with that. Yeah, so I was interviewed for that article at the beginning of the year. And at the time, that was when I was thinking I was going to move out of state and accept a job there. And so the article does say that that, that, that was my intention because it was at the time. But I, I had been interviewed just to discuss how that non-compete had affected me personally and why I was hoping that the FTC would would make that ruling that non-competes are, are not enforceable anymore. And, you know, really what, what bothers me the most then and now is that I felt like I, I was forced to abandon my patients. And 
that I, I don't have a choice to continue seeing them in any way because I, most of them are not going to be able to drive 51 miles from my practice. It's not practical even for people who do have really reliable transportation, but for those who don't, um, it's just out of the question. It seems like like that community needs physicians. I was only the fourth in the whole county. So to make them leave the, the county and go somewhere else, it just, it didn't make sense to me. And, and that's really what I had discussed in that article. Well, there are already quite a few states, including California, North Dakota, and Oklahoma, which already ban the enforcement of non-competes. And six other states ban it for physicians, I, I'm sure, because of this physician shortage issue. And, and your case is a perfect example of why this is something that every state should really think about. And I know that the emergency physician, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, is advocating for banning non-competes. So it's something that we need to raise more awareness about. Now, how much longer do you have before you could potentially work within that 50-mile radius? 22 months. <laughs> Who's counting, right? That's a long time. So you're really strategizing now about what you can do. So your options, what telemedicine or basically picking up and driving, commuting every day or doing locums, what, what's on your mind? Oh, I've thought about lots of, of different possibilities. And right now, what it seems like is going to make the most sense is I'll do some hospitalist work outside that radius. I will do some telemedicine, which I think is exempt. I, I don't know because I'm not sure how they would know where I am and where my patients are. So I'm hoping that that's something I'm going to be able to do. And then I've also started my own practice, which at least for the time being is going to be telemedicine only because I don't want to have to travel outside that radius or make patients do that. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to see some patients that way and, and get my practice off the ground um, just doing phone calls and videos. So what you've decided to do is take a more direct primary care type approach to your practice. Is that right? Yes, it is. So I'm still trying to figure out if I'm going to be strict direct primary care, so not take any insurance, or if I might do some kind of hybrid. I have a lot of military patients because I myself am a veteran. So tons of people on TRICARE, and some of them have expressed to me that, gee, if, if you're not going to take my insurance and you're going to charge me, it's going to be really hard for me to see you. So I'm debating whether I might take TRICARE. Um, talk about some of the challenges that you experienced when you worked for this hospital group and why it was so untenable for you that you had to leave. Because I think a lot of patients and the public and legislators and hospitals, administrators, they don't understand this concept of, of burnout, moral injury, this role strain, especially for women physicians. You know, why some people might just ask, well, you know, why not just tough it out? You care about your patients, just, you know, stay there and just take it. What would you, how would you respond to that? So for me, it was really the perfect storm of a lot of factors coalescing that made it extremely difficult for me to stay there. There were systemic factors, so some that were beyond our control, like the pandemic starting off at that time made it really difficult for us to find staff and for, and for us to have patients come and find our practice too. So that, that was one thing. And then having the staff around me not be particularly experienced when it comes to working in an outpatient family medicine practice. That also, I, that ended up becoming more of an issue than I would have anticipated because I found that they would ask me like, oh, do I need to mix this with saline or lidocaine? And I thought, well, I don't know. I wasn't taught that kind of stuff. Or, hey, doc, you said you wanted to do a 
vaginal swab. What's that exactly? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? What's that? Do we not have those? Um, there were just a lot of things that I had to figure out and then also practice medicine and then also, you know, try to figure out how to, um, make things run a little more smoothly. So what I learned about a year into it was that I was doing things that physicians and other practices were not. So for example, if a patient brought in a form to be filled out, it would just be dropped in my in basket. And then at, in my free time, so, you know, lunch at the end of the day, seven o'clock at night, whatever it was, I'd be sitting there filling out all this stuff on these forms and nobody else did that. You know, usually there was somebody, an MA or a nurse or someone who could complete a lot of that for them um, or who knew how to triage a lot of the questions that would come in. I would just have all these messages sent to me, doc, we don't know what to do. You tell us, we're not sure how to answer these questions. That was really tough and took up so much of my time. And even as I did train my staff, then we had some who had to leave. And so then I had new staff come in and I have to try this all over again. So that part was, was just really tough that I had so much that I I did that other physicians maybe didn't necessarily do. And I didn't even know better either because I was the only physician and I felt like an island. I didn't have other physicians. I could just call and say, hey, how do you do things Um, or go to their office? I did eventually petition to do that so I could see how other offices work. But again, that was over a year into my my job. And then I realized, wow, there's a lot of stuff I could do differently. So then I tried to um, and it kind of helped. But Again, some of this was the patient population too. I had just the area that I'm in is 25% of the the patients are uninsured, and a significant number of the rest have Medicaid or or Medicare or both, and it, it just got, kind of speaks to the poverty of the area and then the the unfortunate lack of medical literacy. So I was spending a lot of time just explaining basic things to patients, or you know, looking at their pills and trying to figure out what's in this bottle and that. And so there's, I did a lot of social work kind of stuff too. And that was taking up a ton of time. And the fact that I care so much and that I want to spend time with patients and listen to their stories. And when those stories would go on for half an hour or more, and then I can't change how long the appointment times are. And then I'm perpetually running late. That was a problem too. And I mean, some of it is my personality. I know I recognize that I am on the autism spectrum. I have ADHD. I am kind of a perfectionist, I've been told. So, you know, I'm I'm confident that all factors in there too. And it just, no matter what I did, I felt like I can't get on top of this. I'm always behind. I'm always frustrated. I kept it up for three years. I really, my own health was suffering. I couldn't do it anymore. I'm sitting here listening to you and I am just going back in time myself to my first job outside of residency I was a National Health Service Corps scholar. I was assigned to a federally qualified health center in a very rural, underserved, low socioeconomic area. And so many of the things that you're saying are resonating. But the difference in my organization was that, in, and I have a lot of criticisms of them, so I, I, I'll mention that. But what was good about them was that the staff had been there a long time. The nurses were excellent. We had the social support. And we had other physicians around. I had mentors that I could go to and get help. And I think that's exactly what you were lacking. Now, could you go into that environment after you had had a few years under your belt and you knew all of that? I would say probably yes. You might have been able to overcome a lot. But it was, again, it was that 
you're right. It was a total perfect storm. And when I listen to this, I feel so sad because I just think, gosh, if you had just had a mentor, uh, an, a seasoned, experienced clinician, physician, ideally there that said, oh yeah, this is how we do that could actually train the staff. And you were learning at the same time as your staff. And here's the kicker. You're doing that while you're trying to see a patient every 10 or 15 minutes. If you were on a direct care model, maybe where you had an hour or 30 minutes or an hour, that would have also alleviated the situation. But I think it was too much. I took the those 30 minutes or hour though, if that's what the patient needed, I'm not going to force it. If they're really just there, that doesn't have to be an hour long appointment, but if they're there for their first appointment and they have a problem list that that goes on forever and ever, and they're on 30 meds, I can't do that in 15 minutes. But were they scheduled for 30 minutes or were they scheduled for 15 and then you're making up time? So the new patients were scheduled for 40 and the, the follow-ups were 20. Um, which in some cases worked out great. But then if they showed up 10 minutes late and then my staff is in there for 10 or 15 minutes trying to get what the story is, I already am walking in with with negative time. So That's right. Yeah, it was just impossible to get past that part of it. And so, yeah, 40 minutes sounds like that should be plenty for a new patient. And for the young, healthy ones that I would sometimes get, it was plenty of time. But for those who were, you know, oh, I just got out of the hospital. I don't know why. I've got diabetes and heart failure. And, you know, nobody's explained to me why I'm on this med. And I don't know, you know, why am I in so much pain? And I'm so depressed. And it's like, well, okay, I can't solve all the problems in one visit, but I kind of need to know what those problems are. So yeah, it, it just, it takes time. Some of it I would imagine has to do with you being a woman in medicine, which we know from studies Patients talk more to women uh, physicians. They women spend more time on socio uh, psychosocial issues and more preventive care, and that ends up taking more of our time. Yes, and then patients would seek me out because they say, "Oh, I hear you're a good listener and you're open to alternative medicine," which I I am when it's appropriate. And so they'd want to go into these deep discussions about these things, which I enjoyed. That was like the fun part of the day. But if I really delved into all that, then that would end up hurting me later because now I'm behind. And when am I going to document all this? Oh, I was, I always had such a hard time with catching up on notes. It was just, no matter what I did, um, I, I couldn't stay on top of all that. So how do you think that going into direct care is going to make that better? Or do you think that some of this is just, it is what it is and you're going to have to accept that? There's a combination. So I, I think that doing direct primary care, especially as I keep it small off the bat and medicine initially, I'm not going to have other staff. So I don't have other people I will need to worry about or train or figure out what they're doing, what they've told patients and try to go back and, and fix it or change it. It's all me. So whatever I do, I have to deal with myself. And in some ways, I think that will be helpful because I don't have that, that question of who's even going to be here and what do they know and what did they do? Okay, great. That will help. And then some of the electronic medical record systems for that are tailored for direct primary care, they, they seem like they're more intuitive. There's not all these things that you have to click. I, all the meaningful use and ACO stuff and all this like that's I don't have to deal with any of that anymore. So I think that will help too, because that was one of my big distractions was figuring out how to do all this coding. There's so much coding and billing and and a lot of that onus was placed on me. That was part of what, what got me back dragged down was like, okay, I have to order the EKG associated with the right diagnosis, put in the the um, procedure code for it, associate that as well, then put in my interpretation. Like just the the time it took to do all of that was such a hassle. It's and death by a thousand clicks. 
it really does take up your time. So I I can assure you that direct care definitely gets rid of all that. And then I'll just put in a plug just for all physicians that are listening. You mentioned personality issues, and we all have those. I've definitely struggled with perfectionism. Uh, the notes have to be just right and all these things that really have ultimately not really helped me be a better doctor, but just in my own head. So I've worked a lot with psychology uh, to help learn how to overcome some of that. And I'm not perfect by any means, but a lot better. So I'll just put out a plug that I think every doctor should have their own psychologist so that they can work on some of these issues. Because, you know, we, even if we leave a practice, we still take ourselves wherever we go. That's true. And, and I have, I have sought help from psychologists, psychiatrists, my own family doc, like, I'll take help from anywhere I can get it. And I, I think that that has been beneficial. Physician coaches as well. I've, I've worked with them. So I, I think I will still have some difficulty no matter where I am, just because I will I will take myself with me, as you said. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I will never get to a point where I just love doing notes and I'm just super efficient. But I think it'll be a lot easier in this model. You know, it's it's funny. I was just doing a malpractice CME about risk management, and there they had a section about you know these scenarios where the doctor missed breast cancer and doctor missed a stroke. And as I was reading this, I started having anxiety. You know, I've been doing this now for twenty five years, and knock on wood, thank please God, I haven't had a, a malpractice case. I've had bad outcomes, but as I was reading this, I started having this feeling like. I don't want all this responsibility. I don't want to miss, you know, cancer. I don't want to. And, and it's almost like, um, you know, we go through these different phases in, in life. Whereas when I was first starting out, I was really terrified of making a mistake and, and getting sued. And, but, and here I am 25 years later, and I'm still having those anxieties and those fears. And even if I work with a psychologist on how to manage it, it's still the job that we're in requires us to be aware that at any minute we could do something or miss something that results in a patient dying. And I think that's really heavy and underrepresented in some of the burnout that we face. Definitely. And it's part of why I felt like spending that time with patients when it was really necessary, when they were asking for it, when they had a lot going on, that that was so important because that what if I miss something critical, it would always circulate through my head. And I mean, it's a it's a possibility, even when it looks like a straightforward case. But when it's somebody who's really complicated, and they're seeing six specialists, it's like so much could get missed, because everybody thinks somebody else's hand. And this is how people slip through the cracks with with really severe diseases and that are diagnosed late stage, because everyone else just makes assumptions. And I didn't want to be one of those people. I understand that. Well, do you have any other insights or thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I can tell you that now that I have been out of work for the past month plus now, this is really the happiest I've been in my life. Um, and it's not that I don't want to work. I do. I that and I'm not I, I'm not just like sitting around twiddling my thumbs. I'm very busy. I'm putting things together and figuring it out. But this has been so wonderful. It was scary in the planning and thinking, oh my gosh, I won't have an income for a little while. What if things don't work out? But I just, I have no regrets. So if there's anybody who's listening and contemplating this, you know, obviously I'm I'm still very early out of the system right now. So things could change, but you know, at the moment I'm, I'm just really glad that I did this for myself. And really, I think if, if, and when I can see my patients again, whether it's through my telemedicine practice or 
um, if something happens with my non-competes where I don't have to be beholden to it anymore, then I think it'll be good for my patients too, um, because then they'll have the benefit of seeing me when I'm at my best and able to take that time without compromising future you know, patients who are sitting there waiting endlessly for me or you know, people who are wondering when a staff member is going to get back to them. It's just going to be me, and I'm, I'm happy to take care of them, and I want to, and I hope I will be able to soon. So how are you making it work financially? Are you just living on savings or things like that? I mean, feel free to not answer if you don't want to. No, that's, that's a very valid question. I took out a, a PRN physician loan. I did that uh, several months ago, anticipating that I might be in a situation where I'm not working for a while. And I do actually have um, a job that I could be doing at this moment um, that I have consciously decided I need a break. I'm not going to do it yet. I will do it. I haven't set a start date yet, but it's either going to be the end of this month or next month because I can swing it. So I have to admit, I'm kind of feeling jealous and it's my own. This is my psychological problem. I could take a sabbatical. I could stop working. And I kind of want to, like, there's that part of me when you say that I'm like, so jealous. I'm like, like when I, like this week I took off from work to do some writing and I'm still talking to patients a little bit here and there, but I'm mostly not in the office and I'm loving it so much. Like I'm loving this week. And I feel like I would love this for um, probably not, not forever, but for a month or even two. And I could make something like that work. It's just then there's something inside of me stopping me. It's that workaholic. It's that, oh, but but what will people do without me? You know, this inflated sense of self-importance. And so what you're saying, I really want I want to thank you for sharing that and for your honesty, because it's something that I really need to think about. And maybe I need to work with my psychologist about figuring out how I can do that because life is short and you got to do, you got to enjoy your life and you have to do things that you want to do. And it's okay to take some time off. Well, and I'm I'm glad you said that too, because it it was a really difficult decision for me to make because I I have the same kind of personality that you and I think most physicians have that like, we have to work, of course, and our our patients rely on us. And, and that's, it's true to an extent, but somehow, as far as I know, most people have survived without me and they're not necessarily happy, but you know, it's not that I'm inflicting this on them on purpose. It's more like I have to live my life because life is short. Um, when I was active duty, my dad died suddenly. And after that, my aunt died, my my close friend died, and my dog died, all back to back, very traumatic. But it was it was good in, in that it made me realize, like, what am I doing with myself? If I, I need to take time to to grieve, yes, but then also to live my own life. It's not all just about work. It can't be. So, you know, it really caused me to take inventory of what am I doing and how am I feeling most days? I feel overwhelmed. I feel stressed. Like, how long do you have to do that before you realize like this isn't worth it? This is this is just making things so much harder, not just for me, but for the people I care about. Hmm. Like maybe it's time to take a big change. And I had told my nurse practitioner for over a year, I need a sabbatical. I need a sabbatical. And so when I confessed to her at the end, I'm scared. I'm not going to be working for a while. She said, Doc, you're getting your sabbatical. Enjoy it. And I am. What great advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackie O'Kane, for sharing your story with us. I'm inspired. I do think this these non-compete issues need to be addressed, but I'm so proud of you for making the best of it and taking care of yourself. And I know you'll get back to great patient care when the time is right and hopefully on your own terms. 
I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I want to put a little plug in for my first book, which is called How to Be a Rock Star Doctor. And it addresses some of the things that Dr. O'Kane and I talked about, especially when you're a brand new physician, still trying to learn the ropes. It has a lot of tips and tricks that I learned when I was going through that phase of my life. And if you're a physician, I encourage you to join our group. Physicians for Patient Protection. We are a grassroots advocacy group that is fighting for physician-led care for all patients, whether that means helping doctors to negotiate non-compete contracts or to open their own practices. So please join us at physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.